Shabbat Shalom, everyone. We are still in Galatians chapter 4, and we've really been investigating this incredible revelation that the Apostle Paul had in regard to Abraham's two wives, Hagar and Sarah, and how they are prophetic representations of the two covenants. The old covenant given at Mount Sinai, right? Represented Hagar, a covenant that brings death. And then there's another covenant that is given through the Messiah Yeshua, the death, burial, and resurrection. It's a covenant referred to as Sarah, a covenant that brings life. Well, today we are going to continue to build upon really what we've been covering over the last several weeks of looking at the, the differences uh, between the old covenant and the new covenant and how significant those differences really are. And so really what we're going to do is we're going to peel back a whole nother layer of that today and really how all this works. When I say how all this works, what we're doing. How does what we're doing today make any sense at all? How can we profess as believers in Yeshua that the Torah is still valid and that Christians should keep the Torah when in fact the Torah cannot be kept today in its written form? How does any of that make sense? Just go to the Torah, read it, and what you'll find in its written form, roughly almost a third of it is dedicated to the temple, to the temple services, to the Kohanim, uh, to their service within the temple, to the sacrifices, and so on and so forth. I mean, how many of you are going up to Jerusalem three times a year? And there are some people that try to get there during the feast, and they do, uh, one particular year or one particular festival of the year, and that's great. But how many of you are going out and doing this three times a year? And yet, let me get this straight. You confess that you're Torah observant. You're Torah observant, believe it. See, where I'm going with this is this is where you lose your Christian friends and family. Right here. Here's what, I love this, and I always love going into this scenario. How many of you after receiving this amazing revelation, as the Lord, the Holy Spirit starts to connect all these dots for you, you're starting to see things in Scripture you've never seen before. Scripture's coming alive. You realize Torah is valid. The teachings of Yeshua have never been clear to you, and you're beaming with excitement and joy. And next thing you know, you start calling your Christian friends. I have to meet with you. We have to sit down. We have to talk. i got to show you what the, what the Lord's really been showing me. And so you go and you sit down with them and you go around and you just know they're going to be as excited as you were when you found this. <laughs> the only problem with that is instead of re literally looking for that response of excitement, what you get is concern. What you get is somebody looking at you and honestly, literally, they really feel that you're walking away from the faith. You are trading grace, the beautiful grace of God. You're trading that for the Torah? Let me say, the mercy? You're trading Jesus for law? Why would you do this? And you love, you know it's coming. You love this part. So let me get this straight. You're Torah observant now. That's fantastic. So now you belong to a cult, I mean a community. <clears throat> and... That community, so now you stone people. Is that what you do? You walk around with a Bible in one hand and a stone in another. Is that what you do? How are we responding? It's a legitimate objection, is it not? What is written in the Torah? 
Stoning, it is explicit. There are particular sins within the Torah that require man to be stoned. And so it's a legitimate objection. How are we handling that? That's what today is about. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about something known as the spirit of the Torah. The spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. What is the spirit of the law? And as we, you know, the, the last few messages that we've been covering, we have covered such important information. Information that I have told you will change. If you understand these principles, it will change your faith. In the very same way, I'm telling you, this is connected. If you understand the spirit of Torah, it will completely transform the way you read the Bible. It will transform the principles and the commandments within how you apply them to your own life. And it will transform the way you articulate your faith to others in a powerful way. And considering what is going on today in this revival of Christians going back to the Torah, I'm telling you right now, you need to have this one under lock and key. You need to understand what the spirit of Torah means. More than anything, because you're going to be having these conversations with other Christians, and hopefully unbelievers as well. I want to open up today by taking you to Romans chapter 7, verse 6. This is what we read. But now we have been delivered from the Torah. We've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. Oh, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. We are not called today to serve in the oldness of the letter. We are called to serve in the newness of the Spirit. The question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to serve in the newness of the Spirit? Well, you ask a modern-day Christian today what that means, and they will tell you it means to abandon the law. It means to turn your back, abandon the Torah, accept Christ, accept grace. This is what it means to modern-day Christianity. In fact, how many of you were at the recent debate that I had? Recently did a debate with a gentleman, very nice gentleman, on whether or not Christians should keep the law. Did you recognize the very first verse that was presented as evidence to show Christians should not keep the law is Romans 7, 6. It's the very first piece of evidence brought forth because the way Christians read this is that they're simply looking at it, and you need to appreciate how they're looking at it. If we're going to have any effect and any impact on our fellow brothers and sisters, you need to appreciate they're looking at this just what it says. And let's be honest, if I'm just looking at this verse, yeah, I can see how they're coming to this conclusion. I can see how they could come to the conclusion, no, we're not called to the law. We're not called to the letter. We need to move on. We have something new. We have the spirit. We have the Ruach HaKodesh now. The only problem with that is the Apostle Paul, right within the book of Romans, he doesn't allow you to come to that conclusion. See, Romans 7, 6 isn't the first verse in the book of Romans. Okay, so you, you, you start out in chapter 1 going into chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 13, not the hearers of the Torah are just in the sight of God, only the doers of the Torah will be justified. Romans 3, 31, do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not, on the contrary. We establish the Torah. We establish. So here's the deal. The Apostle Paul, he frames up this house, and it's got concrete walls. They're immovable. These are immovable walls. You cannot move them. So that when you come to particular statements, 
You don't just get to start ripping out foundations and walls. You have to work in what has been established. And therefore, when I come to this, I, I, I can scratch my head and go, what does that mean? And let's be honest with you. Do you really do you really understand what it means to walk in? I know you understand the Torah's not done away with, but do you understand what he's saying? What does it mean to walk in the newness of the Spirit? Well, to answer that question, I want to take you to 2 Corinthians. And what's interesting, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is a parallel passage to Romans 7. In fact, the Apostle Paul states the very same concept. He's teaching the very same concept. It's a typical Pauline fashion, teaching the same things, but here's the beauty. As we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he uses a little different terminology. Do you know what that does? It explodes our understanding of literally how Paul communicates, the way he's communicating this concept to literally, literally embrace it And to be able to go and articulate it to others, it brings total understanding. And so with that, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Now, this is just unrelated, but, you know, I got to be honest with you. a, A passage, a powerful statement like that, every day... That goes by, and I can I can tell you this. Every year that goes by in my life, I realize something more and more that I am completely dependent upon Yeshua. Because my weakness, my failures, and all of that becomes more and more prevalent in my understanding as I draw closer and closer to Yeshua. You see how much you need him. It's powerful. So this is just a powerful statement. Our sufficiency comes from the God of Israel. Moving on to verse 6. Who also made us sufficient as, oh, ministers of the new covenant. Now, those of you who have been with us for the last several weeks, you understand what we're talking about. You're very familiar with the new covenant. This is going to be very, very helpful. Because now you're going to be able to put this information to good work. So he made us ministers of the new covenant. But look at what he goes on and says. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Exact same thing that the Apostle Paul essentially said, almost verbatim, in Romans 7, 6. The only difference is, is now he utilizes the terminology, the great Hadashat, the new covenant. And he, he shows us something here so powerful, that the new covenant is in fact the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit, and the Spirit gives life. Well, just think about that. Think about all the information that you have now. Okay, so we know the new covenant. It is something that gives life. It is of the spirit. Therefore, when he's talking about the letter killing, and that we're not of the letter, and we're not to serve in the oldness of the letter, what is he referring to? The old covenant. Talk about bringing clarity to the table. Talk about working within the framework of what Paul has established, and just the truth of the New Testament as a whole. This really puts you on firm foundation as you start going through and combing through the statements by the Apostle Paul. Now, as we continue, there's going to be a bit of shock as we see what's said next in verse 7. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, 
let me ask you, what was written and engraved on stones? The Ten Commandments, the Aseret HaDevarim. This is not nebulous. This is not ambiguous. This is very specific. The Ten Commandments were written. What does Paul call the Ten Commandments? A ministry of death. A ministry of death. Think about the implications of this statement for a second. Think about how this statement can dramatically affect all those conversations you have with your Christian friends in regard to whether or not a Christian should keep the law, the Torah. You want to talk about unlocking doors? This passage will do it for you in a very, very powerful way. Now you might say, Daniel, I really don't understand. I'm not following. Think about what Paul is saying here for a second. He's calling the Ten Commandments a ministry of death. Well, if I'm to follow modern-day Christianity's ideology in regard to the law, why does Christianity today reject the Torah, reject the law? They reject it because it kills. It brings death. How many times I point blank ask Christians, well, why do you do that? Well, because it brought death, and Yeshua destroyed death. He conquered sin and death. Therefore, I don't keep the law. Interesting. Why do you keep the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments bring death. You would not believe the stares I get back at that. You want to talk about flipping a conversation on its head. This will do it. I mean, you can hear the gr- the, 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 all the cogs start to crash. And they start to grind together and smoke starts to come out. Because you're forcing them to go back and go, what? What do you mean? That, because here's the problem. Across the board, typically, Christians believe we should be keeping the Ten Commandments. And they're upset when they're stripped out of governmental buildings. They're livid. Well, hold on a second. It's a ministry of death. Why would you do that? I mean, you see the perspective? Do you see how important it is to, 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 to be able to look at the Apostle Paul and his writings and to understand them in their totality, in a complete context, and to be familiar? You have to define his terms. When he starts using terms, you have to understand them. This is a game changer. Because as I said, most Christians will tell you right off the bat, yes, we should be keeping the Ten Commandments. Well, now you created a whole new conundrum for them. A very valid one, amen? Continuing on. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moshe because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Ruach not be more glorious? Now, Paul takes us back to Mount Sinai here, uh, back to a time Obviously, Moses receives the Torah. And, but notice, the Apostle Paul is drawing your attention to one specific thing about the event. The fact that that event had glory. In fact, the glory was so great that Israel couldn't even look at it. They could not look steadily at the face of Moshe. And when you go back and read within the Torah the actual event and how it unfolds, it says the children of Israel were terrified. They wouldn't draw near to Moses. So what does Moses do in response to this? This is critically important because this is where Paul is leading you. There's one specific thing that Paul wants you to draw out of this. One specific thing. Exodus 34, 35. 
And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moshe, that the skin of Moshe's face shone, then Moshe would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with them. Absolutely incredible. The deeds of the fathers are a sign for the children. In other words, what the rabbis teach is they say all these little stories, and we've talked about this, that are recorded in there, these things that are happened, they're prophetic. They have a prophetic significance. And such is the case with Moses. Dropping a veil. What is he doing? He's concealing the glory. He concealed the glory so that Israel could not look at it. What does that tell you? This, and this is where Paul is going. What does it tell you? The fact that Moses dropped that veil. The Apostle Paul is recognizing this was prophetic. This act was prophetic. Oh, that God had something else in mind that he was going to do. That this covenant was not the end of this story. And he concealed the reality from them. He concealed that reality so that even as you have prophets come on hundreds and hundreds of years later, many hundreds of years later, and they start talking about new covenants like Jeremiah, Breed Hadashah would come, or even in the Psalms, a sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared. All these little statements still not understood. In fact, as you get to the first century, they still didn't understand. Even with the revelation and, 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 and the, 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 the new covenant being implemented, it was still something dramatic, still something hidden. It's really an amazing thing. And that's what Paul's drawing upon here. Now, continuing on in 2 Corinthians uh, 3, 9. For it's the ministry of condemnation. He just called it a ministry of death. And in case you missed that, now he circles back and calls it a ministry of condemnation. And you just think of there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Messiah Yeshua. Who is what? He's the institutor of the new covenant, the Breed Hadashah. So here you have this ministry of condemnation. And what he says is it had glory. For if it had uh, glory, then the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. And so now understanding the terms, because, you know, with all due respect, when you read the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, the writers, the prophets, so on and so forth, Paul, they don't just grab one word to describe something. There are many ways they can utilize to describe it, but in the process of that, rather than gleaning and getting more information and a better understanding, most people get lost. In other words, here's what I'm saying. The ministry of condemnation, well, that's the ministry of death. He's referring to the, to the law. He's referring to the old covenant and how the law was given. Remember, written and engraved on stones. He wasn't talking about being written on your hearts. There's a significant difference. So the ministry of condemnation, the old covenant, the ministry of righteousness is a work of the spirit. It's the new covenant. That's what it is. It's a work of righteousness. Yeshua is the righteousness of God. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the Torah and the prophets. Read Romans 3. Continuing on, verse 10. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels, for if what is passing away, I want to say that again. If what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Isn't that fascinating? Remember, we, we talked about uh, the time of transition. 
Remember the time of transition with the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? And how did he talk about this? The writer of Hebrews in chapter 8, he was very specific that the Old Covenant literally became obsolete and it was ready to vanish, ready to vanish when he wrote this, it was ready to vanish away. So you could tell he's writing in the context of the transition period. The exact same thing is happening here. Exact same thing. What is passing away? He's in a current context of a transition. Was we're moving from the old covenant to the new covenant. Moving on to verse 12. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Oh, unlike Moshe, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Again, what I was telling you, it was concealed for them. It was concealed that the old covenant would fade away. They didn't get to see that glory disappear. God veiled it from them. And this is where it gets really interesting as we continue in verse 14. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moshe, the Torah, the law, when the law is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, meaning Yeshua, the veil is taken away. The first thing I want you to recognize here, look at this passage. You won't find anything here to suggest that the Christians should abandon the Torah. And I'm going to tell you right now, considering that he's already professed a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation, this is at the point where this is the crescendo where you tell them Christians should abandon the law. Believers in Yeshua should abandon the Torah, but it's virtually silent. It doesn't say that. Oh, it's interesting. It says the exact opposite. Isn't that interesting? It says that we are called to go to the Torah, but we can't understand it. We'll never gain the riches, the wisdom, the truth, the warnings that it provides. The ability to identify sin. Right? What is Romans 7, 7? I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness unless the Torah had said, thou shalt not covet. We'd have none of this without Yeshua. And so you, you look at this. This is what's amazing. You step back. You look at this landscape. Here you have modern-day Christianity. They have the key. They have the key. Yeshua is the key to unlocking the door of the Torah. But the devil has come in and said, you don't need the door. This key doesn't work with that door. Abandon the door. Jump on the other side. Here you have Judaism, traditional Judaism today. They have the door. They have the sacred door and they're rejecting the key. Do you see how the adversary is working on both sides? Taking away what they need to be complete and whole in the faith? It's not a coincidence that the devil has come to strip the Torah away from the Christian church. To be able to have eyes to see and ears to hear. To have conviction. To have instruction. To have truth. It's not a coincidence what the, what the devil has done to the Jewish people. Taking away the key. So that they can actually see what the Torah means. And to glean what it says. You cannot apart from Yeshua. You know I, I, I think of Yeshua. His disciples they come to him in Matthew 13. 
Why do you speak to them in parables? Because to you, to his disciples who followed him, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to them it has not been given because they did not follow him. They did not acknowledge him. And you see Yeshua earlier in that in Matthew 11. He goes, oh, Father, I thank you, Lord of heaven, that you've hidden this from the wise and prudent and you've revealed them to babes. Unless you become as little children, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of God. And that little child believes in Yeshua. It's truth. He's the key to unlocking the door. And so as we look at this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is revealing, he's showing the necessity and the power of Yeshua and how it beautifully comes together with the Torah. This is the match made in heaven. This is what we were meant to experience. 1 Corinthians, just building on this in chapter 2, verse 11. For what man knows the things of a man, except the spirit of the man which is in me? In other words, every one of you are thinking a thought right now, whether or not it's Daniel's long-winded, whatever. We don't know. All you, all you, you're the only person that knows the, only, the thoughts that are in your mind. You're the only person that knows the thoughts in your heart. No, nobody else is mind readers in here. This is what he's saying. What man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man that is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. I want to take you back to Romans 7, 14. What did it say? The law is spiritual. The Torah is the spiritual thing. It is not a product of the flesh. It's a product of the most high God. It is spiritual. And there is no way that you're going to be able to understand that which is spiritual unless you have the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. How do we get the Holy Spirit? Remember what we read in John 7, right? Whoever believes in me out of his heart is going to flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit of those who would believe in him would receive. In other words, here's the formula. We need the key. We need Yeshua. When we accept him, he anoints us. He gives us the Holy Spirit so that when we go to his law, when we go to his word, we extrapolate all the riches that are embedded within the Torah. Because the riches of the kingdom of God are hidden within her. And we are meant to have them. But they will be shielded from those who do not receive the key. Because you'll never be given the spirit to have that understanding. Now, having said that, I want to take this concept of the spirit of Torah. And I want to begin, and we're going to be looking at this for the next couple weeks, but I just want to begin to put this into a practical application. This has to be tangible for you. The more tangible it is, the more you apply it. And the more the ability for you to apply it, the more you understand it, the better you are at articulating this position. And now you're going to be lethal. You're going to go destroy all the lies of Hasatan that he has been telling. See, because he's painted a false picture of what the Torah really is. Yeshua has painted this beautiful picture of what his commandments are, what his word is. And the devil has come and defaced it. He has made it look repulsive. He has made it look as though it's a thing of a, that's oppressive. Twisting the words of Yeshua, twisting the words of the Apostle Paul. It's demonic. And so this is a powerful point. We have got to have this principle. And so I think the best way to unpack this is really dealing with that objection. The simple objection of, do we stone people? 
Do you stone people? Again, how many, if, if, if you were at the uh, debate, you, you will realize one of the questions that I was asked is, really, do you stone people? And it was obviously meant to stump me. I knew it was coming. I've been asked it. I, I can't tell you how many times. Because when you have a conversation with Christian pastors, especially, they love to bring this one out. And do you want to know why? Because the devil has painted a picture that the Torah is this oppressive theological Neanderthal. It's barbaric in nature. And grace is civilized. See, this grace, we're living in a civilized society now. But you go back to Torah and you're going back to barbarism. And you're, you're, you're like a caveman walking around with a Bible throwing stones at people who sin. See, this is the lies that the enemy tells. And so I, I always love, and I'm just going to give you my response. When people ask, do I stone people? I say, absolutely. Yes, I stone people. And they look at me really funny, uh, some offended. But, you know, I say that, you know, most people say, oh, he's obviously being tongue-in-cheek. I only say it in part in tongue-in-cheek. I'm dead serious. Absolutely. Because I always follow up with this. The Apostle Paul did. And the Apostle Paul didn't just go out to stone people. He commanded, listen to me, he commanded Gentile believers, Gentile believers to go stone people. And when you understand this concept, when you understand what's really happening, that man, the spirit of Torah just explodes. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to show you how this works. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality that's not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Now, the first thing, obviously, we have some serious immorality going on within the church in Corinth. And it's the sexual immorality that a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, it is across the board understood because Paul certainly would have used different language. It's not his biological mother, but it is his father's wife. This is a Reuben situation, all right, who went and laid with his father's concubine, Bilha, right? Uh, this is this situation. It's, it's appalling. Uh, uh, adultery is appalling on any level. But then when it's your own father, this is just a whole nother measure that Paul can't even get his head wrapped around. Okay, so we're dealing with adulterous situation. Now, verse two, and you are puffed up. You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. Paul is rebuking the, the Corinthians hardcore right now. They're arrogant. They're puffed up. They should be weeping and mourning that this sin be taken out of their camp. And he moves on in verse 3. For I indeed, as absent in the body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. Here's Paul acting in judgment. He's not even there. In the name of our Lord Messiah Yeshua, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of of our Lord, Messiah Yeshua, verse 5, deliver such a one to Satan. Deliver him for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Yeshua. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You know, it's interesting to bring this into modern day considering this is plaguing the church. The church is filled with adultery today. There's no question about it. 
Every time you go to the news report, there's another pastor being taken out where it's been revealed he's been caught in sexual immorality with extracurricular activities. But it's interesting what Paul says uh, that you're to deliver so much one that he can be to, to Yeshua. Your glorying is not good. I think about this concept, your glorying, and when you actually put it all together, it's, it's really frightening. The fact that the Corinthians took a back seat. Now, why may they have taken a back seat, I ask? Well, because we stand on the grace of God. The grace covers. God is not a God, a judgmental God. He's a loving God. We've been introduced to this just God of mercy. They haven't been introduced to a God of judgment, but just this God of mercy. So they're forgetting the reality of judgment. Paul's bringing it to their mind. He's bringing it hard. And this is where he's coming. You get this guy, you give him to the devil. Go give him to the devil. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And how true is that? That's why sin cannot be in the camp. Just a little bit. What's it say? Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. One sinner will destroy good. Do not think anything different. No matter how close that person may be to you. It would be very dangerous. We'll get into that in a moment. Moving on to verse 11. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. Meaning they're a believer in Yeshua. Who is sexually immoral. Not just that. But even covetous. Or an idolater. Or a reveler. Or a drunkard. Or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. See this one thing about the Jewish culture. And you see in scripture eating with someone is the ultimate form of fellowship. There's a reason it's recorded that we're going to eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's an intimate form of fellowship. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges, meaning the world, the unbelievers. Therefore, oh, Put away from yourselves the evil person. Well, how silly of Paul. He just went to the Torah. He just commanded Gentile believers to implement judgment in the Torah. And not just any judgment, the judgment of stoning. And we find this in Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. If a man is found lying with a woman, married to a husband, such is the situation in Corinth, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. And then as you go on, it says they're to be stoned. This is the stoning law. The apostle Paul is implementing this stoning law with Gentile believers. See, here's where you have a problem. These people that say, well, the Torah, and this is, it's, it, seems so, it seems so refined and brilliant. Well, the Torah is for a particular people. In a particular, meaning Jewish people, in a particular place, meaning Israel, for a particular period prior to the coming of Yeshua. That's baloney. And this flies in the face of it. And everywhere else I can take you to the New Testament, I can show you that's from the pit of hell. It's an absolute deception. It's a fictitious argument for a particular people, for a particular place, in a particular period. It's bogus. It's completely made up. You can't find that anywhere in the Torah. You can't find that anywhere as prophesied in the Torah. You can't find it anywhere in the New Covenant. New Covenant scriptures. And obviously, look at what Paul's doing. He's implementing the Torah. 
So here's where we get into the spirit of Torah. Ask yourself, did the Corinthians literally stone this guy? No, absolutely not. They excommunicated him. They didn't stone him. And yet, and listen to me carefully, they 100% followed the prescription within Torah. They fulfilled Torah. They fulfilled. What is Torah? Torah is the will of God. They fulfilled the instruction. They fulfilled the will of God. Excommunicating this, this guy did that. And even though the, the literal letter, the literal letter wasn't followed for you hyper-literalists, the spirit was. Now, you can ask the question, I've been asked this, there's the only reason I'm dealing with this. Why wasn't he literally stoned? I mean, why not just go ahead and do it? Well, if you notice something, Rome was not in power. You know, Israel was not living under a theocratic government in the first century, meaning Israel was not in, in control, utter control over its own people, let alone Corinth. I mean, Rome was in total, complete power. And, and understand something. This was the conundrum that the Jewish leaders faced in Yeshua's day when they wanted him dead. They wanted to put him to death. In fact, this is what we read in John 18, 21, or 31. Then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law, meaning the Torah. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, some people actually read this that it's actually referring to the Torah as prohibiting us and that it's because Yeshua is innocent. That is not what they're saying. That is not what they're saying at all. What they're saying is, is that Roman law prohibits us from doing what we want to do. It's not lawful for us, see, because here's the reality. You couldn't just go around stoning people under Roman law. You find yourself in a world of hurt under a nation that had mastered the art of torture. In other words, to inflict psychological torment upon the people so they wouldn't rise up, so that they wouldn't commit and they wouldn't, wouldn't rise up against Rome. Wouldn't do wrong. They were masters at torture. That's why crucifixions were open. Get into the people's heads. And so this is what's being saying. And just so you know, just to support this interpretation, look at what is said in the very next chapter. Therefore, when the chief priests, the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him. This is the second time Pilate says this. You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Then the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die. Because he made himself the son of God. So just so that you understand that before in, in John 18, they're referring to Roman law. But they flat out and come and tell him, according to our law? Yeah, he's supposed to die. It was, he was guilty of blasphemy, according to the chief priests. He was blasphemy, making himself God, being the son of God. And so my point is here, very simple point. You couldn't just go around stoning people. But that didn't mean you couldn't keep the Torah. Actually, you could still keep it. You just excommunicate this individual and you will fulfill the requirement of the Lord. In fact, I could take this a step further that even when Israel was in total control of their government, this is what's interesting and this is where the spirit of Torah comes into play. Do you know that the spiritists, the mediums, the witches, that were in the land, according to Torah, they are commanded to be put to death. There's this, again, not nebulous, they're to be put to death. 
What's interesting, under King Saul, he actually excommunicated them. Interesting. He excommunicated, and it fulfilled the Torah. Now, you know, as we get to the end of 1 Samuel 28, he goes to meet with the witch of Endor because he had excommunicated all the spiritists out of the land. But he fulfilled the Torah. And most people would try to be held. Well, Saul didn't fulfill it. Yeah, he did. He was never condemned for doing that. He would be applauded for fulfilling the Torah. You know, this is the one thing, and this, this is the, we could go down this road for, forever. When people look at the judgments of the Torah and the things that, that it wasn't always carried out. These judgments weren't always carried out in the manner that we have conceived in our heads all the time. They weren't. And so when you realize that, they, most oftentimes, they were carried out in the spirit of Torah, such as the case, uh, you know, with uh, the, the mediums and spiritists under Saul. So, having said that, I want to be clear on something as we get into closing here. Stoning, which sounds barbaric to the modern-day Christian, stoning is biblical. It's a good thing. It always has been. It always will. And that sounds completely crazy, but I want you to understand. There are things that are accomplished in stoning or excommunication. And number one is it delivered justice to the evildoer. Absolutely critical. You study the Torah, you know how important this is. Not just that, it, it got the leaven out of the camp. And in conjunction with that, it actually strikes fear into the heart of others that they may not sin. Now, that one is so critical. When people see judgment, it's just as I was alluding to before, when Rome would implement these horrific judgments upon the people, the whole concept is, is nobody else better do this. Well, see, that's the reality that's supposed to head in. Even if you're going to excommunicate somebody, is that you will not fellowship with the Lord's people if you're going to behave like this. You are out of here. In fact, I want to just show you how powerful this really is. In Deuteronomy 13, verse 6, if your brother, the son of your mother, okay, we're talking family, the son of your daughter, the wife of your bosom, it doesn't get closer to that, or your friend who is as your own soul, your best friend, secretly entices you saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, verse 10, you shall stone him with stones until he dies. I want you to think about that. I mean, just think about that scenario. They are to be stoned with stones. These are the people closest to you. The devil is very good and very crafty at using people closest to you. Be very careful. Very crafty. Because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, so all Israel shall hear in fear and not do such wickedness as is among you. You see what happens here? Total fear coming upon them. That not even family is safe when they come against the God of Israel. That's stoning. That's the mind of the Lord is pure. He is not barbaric. He is merciful. He doesn't want to lose an entire nation. Deuteronomy 17 verse 12. Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the Kohen who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So we're talking about people that refuse to submit to authority. 
So you shall put away the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear in fear and no longer act presumptuously. The death penalty, the stoning, or the excommunication, it implements awesome fear. One more, and we'll close with this. Deuteronomy 19, 18. And the judges shall make careful inquiry, and indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he had thought to done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear and hereafter shall not again commit such evil among you. This is when I say stoning is a good thing. Yes, it is. It keeps the lump pure. It keeps the enemy from taking over. Judgment is critical. And this isn't an Old Testament thing. This is a now thing. This is not for a particular period. We need this now. But this is just a great example of the spirit of Torah. Now, as we continue in, in, in the coming weeks, we're going to look at a lot of passages, both in the Old and we're going to look at the New. And you're going to start to develop a real true understanding of what the spirit of Torah really is.